Well, good morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. While you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you again for the time to um, gather. And um, Lord, we just ask that you speak with us. We ask that you would guide us and help us um, to wrestle with your word, to um, wrestle with our own flesh, put it aside. Lord, we want to be spirit transformed. I'll take that as a answer from heaven. Amen. God's with us. Um, if you've uh, if you've been around for a little while in this church, if you've been listening in online, you will know that I have a bit of a um, dig every now and again, what I call coffee cup verses. There are verses that are pretty popular in the Bible. How many verses were there, Marty? 31,100. 31, that's a lot of coffee cups. Um, not all of them, of course, end up on coffee cups, just the ones that we, for whatever reason, um, sometimes suit our agenda. And so we like to put them on a coffee cup. Um, I'm not a big fan of coffee cup verses, not because they're not true. The verse is excellent. What I don't like about coffee cup verses is the fact that we tend to just rip them from wherever they live, stick them on our coffee cup, and um, our coffee cups aren't big enough to put all the other verses that should go with them on there. There's a coffee cup verse in today's passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. You know what? 40-40. So whether you can eat, Sandra, I think I've got a picture of this one up somewhere. There's a coffee cup verse there. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. You know that verse? Maybe you haven't memorized it. You should. Um, if you haven't memorized it, you're probably at least familiar with this idea. Whether you eat or drink, sounds liberating, doesn't it already? Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about Charles Spurgeon. Some of you will have heard of him. He's um, not living on earth anymore. He's been um, sent ahead of us. He's in glory, worshipping. I, I really love reading and listening to uh, stuff that Charles Spurgeon wrote. Um, they call him the Prince of Preachers. Um, that was his nickname given to him by the press, by the newspaper writers. So you can see the quote up there. Let me give the context to it. Um, he, thousands of people used to attend his church. He was a megachurch pastor, really, long before megachurches existed. And um, people came from all over the world just to be able to sit and listen to Spurgeon preach, including, on occasion, other quite famous preachers. And so once he invited a guest preacher to come and speak at his church, and it was probably a great honour to the guy. His name was Mr. Pentecost. And he delivered a very powerful sermon, so the press reported, a very powerful sermon on the dangers of little foxes. It's an Old Testament reference. Little foxes that destroy the vine. And he illustrated his sermon by applying the principle 
of small sins that wreak great havoc. And he did that by telling of his own battle to overcome an addiction to tobacco. And in particular, he shared a story about his previous love of smoking cigars. Unbeknownst to Mr. Pentecost, Spurgeon loved smoking cigars. And he felt that there was nothing wrong with the habit. And he famously responded at the close of the service. So Mr. Pentecost, the guest preacher, went and sat back down. Mr. Spurgeon stood back up and came up to the front to dismiss the church out for the week. And in his dismissal of the church, he said, Well, dear friends, you know that some men can do to the glory of God what other men to other men would be a sin. And notwithstanding what Brother Pentecost has said, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. <laughs> so I tell you this story for one reason. It's not because my topic has anything to do with smoking or not. I tell you the story because Spurgeon applied our coffee cup verse to his personal practice. And I am wondering, was he right? Not about the topic of smoking, but was he right to apply 1 Corinthians 10.31 to his practice and say, well, I'm going to do that to the glory of God. Can we take 1 Corinthians 10.31 and simply apply it to anything that we enjoy doing and therefore divinely bless our activity by declaring it to be done to the glory of God. I mean, it is after all what the verse says, right? If you grab your coffee cup and just look at your coffee cup, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And so I'm wondering this morning, was Spurgeon right? Or maybe it doesn't really matter what Spurgeon thought. He may have been the prince of preachers, but it won't be C.H. Spurgeon who gives an account of your life before the great judge. It will be you and I. So before we go brandishing our new coffee cup that we've just ordered from Kurong around the place, let's have a closer look at all the verses that they didn't have room to print onto your coffee cup, and maybe we'll be able to make a bit more of an informed decision about what Paul meant when he wrote these words, okay? So 1 Corinthians 10, 31, of course, is the coffee cup verse that we, we know of, but let's back it up a little bit and go back up to verse 23. Um, I think it's a great habit to stand up and read the Word of God together as a church, so if you're able to stand, would you just um, join me in standing up, and I'm going to read this passage, and we'll stand as we read God's Word, if that's possible for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting from verse 23, and it says this, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market, 
without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising question for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is from the sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticised because of something for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me, as I also imitate Christ. That's God's word. Let's take a seat. I think it would be helpful to um, break this bigger passage into maybe three smaller sections and we'll just notice or try and make a, an observation about how they sort of connect with one another a little bit. And what you'll see here is that Paul gives us a principle, a principle to guide our thinking on this whole subject. And then he applies that principle to a specific example. And then finally, he gives us a command that we should obey. All right, so we're going we're gonna to follow that same logic as we go through it. I'll try and point it out as we go. There'll be a principle, then there will be an example, and then there will be a command. All right, so we'll take the principle um, first. One of the things that's going to be helpful is to remember one of the really big themes that this entire letter to the Corinthian church um, contains, okay? Paul continually, as we go through this letter, Paul continually hits on the false identities that we adopt or that the Corinthian church adopts and we can certainly see ourselves um, in this letter. So there's these false identities that we adopt and often there's um, practices, certain practices in our life that flow out of those identities and it's a type of self-righteousness you know it's the ways that we think and act to earn our own good standing with God that's what I mean by self-righteousness and at the root of so many of the struggles in the church at Corinth um, we can see the the sorts of struggles that we have as well and, and I think there's a parallel between their church and some of the things that we experience in our life it's why God has you know, retain this letter for us down through the years. Um, at the root of it is a misapplication of the gospel, um, a misapplication of what God has done and the implications of that in our life. And so to each of these false identities that Paul highlights in this letter, um, Paul then looks to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ into that particular scenario, that identity, in such a way as to sort of dismantle it, tear it down and then rebuild it back up so that we can say, this is who I am in Jesus. So here's the principle that Paul begins this section with and in it we're going to see both the false identity 
that has taken root in their life. But I think we'll also see the remedy which is found in the gospel. So I want you just to focus in on verse 23 and verse 24 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 and verse 24. This is where I think that you start to see this principle that Paul um, is giving for us to, to shape our minds. So here it is. Everything is permissible. That's a pretty liberating statement, right? Everything is permissible. Uh, to use a different word, you're allowed to do anything. Everything is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. All right? And then he says it again, everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So in there we start to see a principle. And here's the way I would summarize that principle. And I would just simply use the words of Paul. I don't think I can improve on them. And it's that last little sentence in that passage we just read out. And here's the principle. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Right. Now, the, the false identity that was at work in there um, probably comes, I think, in the sense that Paul repeats this idea, everything is permissible. So as a Christian, you've experienced full forgiveness in Christ. Your sins have been dealt with. There is no more sense of trying to uh, fulfill the law, the law of God that he's handed down to his people. Now, we can't fulfill it. And so there's a false way of thinking about our faith then where we start to say, well, listen, I am free in Christ, right? I'm liberated. Everything is permissible. You know? There's nothing that you can do that is going to cause Jesus to sort of say, well, you crossed the line there, you can't be saved. All right. Um, everything is permissible. But Paul quickly points out, hey, but not everything is beneficial. Right? Maybe it's permissible. Maybe it is. But is it beneficial? So there's a certain way of understanding our freedom and our liberty in Christ where we're no longer bound by the law. You know, the law condemns us. That's what the law does. We can't fulfill it. And instead, we experience grace as a free gift from God where our sin is pardoned, His righteousness, His righteousness is applied to us and it's applied to us apart from any merit. Or We don't deserve it. We can't earn it in any way. And so by no merit of our own, God's righteousness is given to us as a gift in Christ. And so Paul says, yes, in that sense, everything is permissible. But the true gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't ask this question. The question that it doesn't ask is this. What am I allowed to do? All right. So as a Christian, maybe you've asked that of yourself. I certainly have as I was a younger guy, as an older guy. I'm a Christian now, all right? And I love Jesus. And I'm looking at all the different things that I can do in my life, the different activities of my life, the different habits of my life, the different practices of my life, maybe the different things that I can consume or the things, places that I can go. Maybe you've asked it about movies that you should watch or not watch or things like that. And, and you might ask yourself, as a Christian, what am I allowed to do? All right? 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't ask that question. It doesn't ask us, what am I allowed to do? It asks, what is it good to do? What is it good to do? Because Paul says, yes, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. The gospel goes even further than that. It might be a, a, a radical statement for some, but I'm unashamedly going to stand by it. There wasn't a single thing that you could do to earn your salvation. Not one single thing that you could do to earn your salvation. And there isn't a single thing that you could do to lose your salvation. In that sense, Paul says everything's permissible. Everything's permissible. But listen, as a child of God, there's a list a mile long of things that aren't good for you. And there's another list, even longer, of things that you can do that aren't good for other people. You can do them. You're, you are free in Christ to do that. But it's not maybe good for you, and it's certainly maybe not good for somebody else. So here is the gospel principle at work in the children of God. This is how the gospel works its way out in our daily life. Right? The gospel is a series of truths. But those truths have implications. They, they have an effect in our life. They're not just things that we, we tick off in our head and we say, yes, I believe these truths in my mind. They must work their way out into real life. So the principle is, no one is to seek their own good. This is the principle that Paul wants us to sort of just grasp a hold of. When we're thinking about, hey, I'm going to live out this certain activity in my life. Uh, there's a choice before me. For Spurgeon that morning, it was, um, is it okay for me to smoke a cigar or not? Am I allowed to do that? Well, the gospel says, not am I allowed to do that. It says, is it good to do this? And the principle that should be guiding our thinking in any choice that lies before us is, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So will this activity, will this choice before me, is it for me that I want to do this? Or am I thinking about how it affects you? That's the principle that Paul wants us to think about. Now he's going to give us an example. All right. So there's the principle. Then he's going to give us an example. And the thing about a principle is that it can be applied into lots of different circumstances. Um, and so very helpful, I think Paul applies it directly to a situation that the Corinthian church was facing. They were grappling with a particular... Um, they were just uncertain about what to do about a certain circumstance in their life. And that situation was whether it was okay to eat meat that had been used in the pagan sacrificial system of the town. All right? Um, if you were here last week, or if you listened to the message from last week, you would have heard me read these verses out from a little earlier in chapter 10. You can probably just scan your eyes up a little bit. Um, in verse 19 of chapter 10, Paul has already been talking about this a little bit. He says, what am I saying then? 
that food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no, no, they're not. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So in in Corinth, in the town of Corinth, where these Christians lived, there was this sort of sacrificial pagan worship that was taking on, and it involved people taking certain types of meats or animals down to the the temple of the God that they were worshipping, and those animals were sacrificed to that God. But not all the meat was burnt up. They would just take, you know, symbolic bits. They might put the liver there or the heart or whatever it might have been out of that animal to say, this is, we are offering this animal to the God. The rest of the meat would get butchered up and put into the local markets, all right? Because they would still, that's still good meat. They could still eat, you know, people could eat that. The church was really torn up about what was right to do here. Um, what is permissible in this situation, they're wondering. We're Christians now. We don't, we don't believe, we don't want to engage in pagan worship. Paul has already told us, right? Um, hey, I don't want you to participate with demons. What should we do? Paul, tell us what we're allowed to do. So we need to remember the principle here. The principle was, yeah, everything is permissible, but not everything's beneficial. Not everything builds up. And so the gospel starts to strip away those false identities that we have and it builds something new in its place. A people who won't seek after their own good, but the good of other people around them. That's the principle at work amongst the children of God. A whole community of people who who refuse to seek after their own benefit and good and are completely committed to saying, what is good for you? I want to do what is good for you, what will build you up. And so Paul applies that principle to this specific example of, is it okay for us, Paul, to eat this meat that's been used in the sacrificial system? And so Paul says in verse 25, listen, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising question for the sake of conscience since the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. If any, of you, if any of the unbelievers invite you over for dinner and you want to go, then eat everything that's set before you without raising question for the sake of conscience. So can you imagine that if you were a Christian in Corinth and you go to, uh, well, you wouldn't go to your fridge, but you'd go to your meat cupboard and... Um, and you'd say, oh, we're getting low on chops. Um, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? I'm just going to duck down to the market and get some meat. And you go down to the, the, the meat market and there on the, on the bench is all the meat that's been butchered and it's there for you to buy. I'm not sure if any of you have travelled to other parts of the world. We have an addiction in Australia to shrink wrapping everything. Doesn't happen everywhere else. Um, You just brush the flies off and take what you need. Um, But can you imagine if you were a Christian in Corinth and and you're thinking, you know, I used to to be involved in this pagan worship stuff. I used to worship false gods and 
And now I've met Jesus. He's transformed my life. I don't want anything to do with that. But you know that it's quite possible that on the table in front of you, some of that meat, it might have come from the temple. So which bit of meat do you choose? How would you know? Is, it, is that temple meat? Is that just other sort of meat? Which one is okay to buy? Paul says, don't worry about it. It's all just meat. Just go down there. Get some meat. Give thanks for it. Eat it. All right? And then he says, if you go to your neighbor's place, they're not, they're not believers yet. Maybe you've been sharing gospel conversations with them, asking them great questions about what they believe in their faith. And they say to you, listen, why don't you come over for dinner and we'll talk more about this. And you say, that'd be great. And you, you say to your, your wife, I'm so excited. I've been praying for this opportunity. My neighbours, our neighbours, have invited us over for dinner. And they get there and they serve lamb roast. Like beauty. Should you eat it? Maybe it came from the temple. They're not even Christians. Maybe they're pagan worshippers. Maybe they've been down there. I don't know. Paul says... Hey, listen, if you go over there and you want to go, then eat everything that's set before you. Don't raise questions for the sake of conscience. But, if someone says to you, this food, this food is from a sacrifice. Paul says, don't eat it. Don't eat it. Out of consideration for who? For you? I don't want to do the wrong thing. Paul says, no. Out of consideration for the one who told you. And for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, he says, but the other person's. Can you see the way the principle is working out? Not for your good. Meat's meat. Just eat it, he says. But if someone says, hey, I got this from the temple, what are they doing? They're pointing something out. They know there's something different about you. And Paul says you should be concerned for their conscience, for the witness that this has in their life. Not about whether or not you're going to be tainted or something by pagan meat. He says, who cares about the meat? This is about what's going on for them. And Paul even says, listen, why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticised because of something for which I gave thanks for. The meat's not the issue. The meat's not the issue. But the other person is. What will this do for the other person that might either lead them closer to Christ or push them further away? So the original example that Paul wants to apply the principle to, the original example is, should I eat meat or not? Paul says, basically, listen, you don't need to be concerned about where your meat came from when you go shopping. You don't even need to be concerned where it came from if you get invited out for dinner at your non-Christian friend's home. It is likely, it is likely that some of the meat has probably been sourced from the pagan temple. That's very probable, but Paul basically says, who cares? It doesn't matter. Everything is permissible, right? But not everything's, what, beneficial? And not everything builds up. So Paul gives the second part of the example. There are situations where it's not going to be good to eat that meat. And that situation is governed by how will it affect somebody else. Now here's the thing though. I'm fairly certain that none of us are particularly concerned about our, whether our local butcher 
is sourcing meat from a pagan temple. Today, it might have been a problem in Corinth, but I don't know if it's that big a problem in Roman Terrace, is it? I mean, when you go down to Brown's Butcher or some other place, Woolies or somewhere, are you walking up and down the aisles thinking, gee, I wonder whether this meat has come from the pagan temple? You might be looking to see whether it's been grain-fed or something, but it's not the same thing. So I was trying to think about another example where this same principle could be applied. There's probably hundreds of them, but here's one that I thought of. Here's a question, a contemporary example. Should I accept welfare or not? The Corinthians were saying, should I eat meat or not? We could possibly ask, should I accept welfare or not? We live in an insanely wealthy country. Like, it is crazy how wealthy Australia is in the, in the scheme of the countries of the world. It's one of the richest nations on earth. In fact, our social services and our public health care are world-class and the envy of pretty much every other nation on earth. Our government will give you money just because you had a kid. It doesn't happen other places in the world. If you're sick and you don't have any money, you can go to a hospital and be treated. Now, I know that there are faults. We're all pretty quick to complain about public health care. But the reality is, it's brilliant. It is brilliant. Why is our nation so wealthy? How can it do this? How can it just give money out like that? One reason is because of our natural resources. Um, coupled with the fact that we barely give a second thought to digging everything up that's valuable and selling it. <laughs> Our nation has made a lot of money over the years from its natural resources. Another reason that we are so wealthy, and this is, sounds a bit ironic, but another reason why we are so wealthy as a nation is because we are a nation of gamblers. Australians will bet on two flies sitting at the bar. Which one... He's going to fly off first five bucks, mate, to the one that flies off on the right, right? I looked up the stats. Australians spend, on average, this has just taken over the last recent history, Australians spend, on average, $20 billion a year on gambling. That's the public stats. Try and wrap your head around that number. $20 billion a year on gambling, most of which is sucked into the system down at the pokies. Most of which. Our government picked up on the fact that we are a bunch of gamblers in this country, and they made a pretty shrewd decision a number of years back. They decided to enact a law that taxes our gambling addiction. So of the $20 billion that we spend, $6.6 billion ends up in the government savings account every year. $6.6 billion every year gets funneled from our gambling addictions into the savings accounts of the government. Now, guess where your parenting payment comes from? Or your government pension that you receive? 
or your Medicare rebate or your dole payment comes from our government savings accounts. So, as Christians who absolutely oppose the damaging effect of gambling and knowing that it is quite probable that some of your fortnightly payments have been funded by the taxation of our nation's gambling addictions, should you keep accepting the government's money? This is our question. We don't have to worry too much about did our meat come from the pagan temple. Maybe we should be asking, should we keep the money that the government gives us when we know where some of it might come from? Or should we as a church apply for a government grant for some good cause when we know where the money may have possibly come from? Well, this is how I think Paul would, would answer that, applying the principle and how he answered the question in Corinth. I think Paul would say, should you take that money? Yes. Should you take money from the government in your pension if they give it to you? Sure. I think Paul would say, money's just money. Meat's just meat. Everything's permissible. But what if you received a letter with your pension, or if we as a church received a letter that said, hey, these funds are being forwarded to you to the thanks of the generosity of our gambling license revenue. Paul says, send that money back. And money's just money. He just said that. Meat's just meat. But now he says, hey, listen, you shouldn't accept that. But it's not about the money. It's not about, is that dirty money? Is that money that's come... It's not about the money. Money is still money. It's neither good nor bad. And he says, and don't even decline it to ease your own conscience. Your own conscience isn't the point, he says. The point is what it communicates to others. How will this action whether you take the money or don't take the money, or whether you eat meat sacrificed to idols or not, how will this action serve the interests of others? So Paul says, you're free to make whichever choice you feel serves the interests of others. What will build others up best? What will help others see Jesus clearer? So there we had a principle, we've had an example, and now we're going to finish with a command. Remember what the principle was? No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. There's the principle. Paul's example was, well, how does our principle apply to the question of should I eat meat or not? And then we made up our own example. How does our principle apply to the question of should I accept welfare or not? Thousands of other examples we could have used. Now, now let's look at our command. Verse 31. Here's our coffee cup verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Let me just pause there for a moment. 
So often when we read this coffee cup verse out of context, we put the emphasis on the eat and the drink. All right? Whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, Paul's putting the emphasis on the question that's sitting before us. He said, listen, whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you decide to do this or whether you decide to do that, or, or whatever example you want to use, whatever you decide to do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, there's the principle, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they might be saved. Right? That's Paul's goal. And then he says, it's a weird chapter breakup that they people put in, chapter 11, verse 1, I think this verse belongs with the others, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So here's how I would put a little summary statement of, I think, the command. What's the command that Paul has for us there? The command is, pursue the glory of God. That's the command. Pursue the glory of God. How do I do that? Well, by following Paul's example, as he followed Christ's example, in denying your own rights in preference for the good of others. That's the command. Let me just really quickly explain that. I want to make it as clear as I can. Paul wasn't saying that we should become people pleasers, right? In the sense that we do whatever people want in order to gain their approval. That's what we mean by people pleasers these days. If I have a people pleasing problem, well, there's a lot of P's in that. If I had a people pleasing problem, then what I have a problem with is I'm always just trying to make you happy. I always want you just to be happy with me so that I'm in, I don't feel uncomfortable and that you'll like me. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's not talking about people-pleasing. This is an attitude of humility, the willingness to stoop and wash other people's feet, just like Jesus did. Or to not cause offence, even when, and maybe especially when, I feel I'm completely justified in my decision to do whatever it is that I'm wanting to do. Paul says, it's not about your rights, it's about how it's going to affect them. It's going to be whether or not this leads them closer to Jesus. So we started with a question, was Spurgeon right? Mr. Penny got, Mr. Pentecost got up, talked about his struggle with smoking and how he'd battled with it and how he gave it up. And Spurgeon applied our coffee cup verse and he said, I'm going to go home and smoke a good cigar to the glory of God tonight. So was Spurgeon right? Could he go home and smoke a good cigar to the glory of God? Well, the answer is yes, quite possibly. But maybe also no. Maybe he was just exercising his right to smoke with no regard for anybody else. Maybe. You see, what you do isn't really the point here, with exception to explicitly stated sinful behaviour. I'm not so... Chris said we can go out and rob a bank. 
as long as it's for the glory of God. That's not what I'm saying. But in one sense, it's not really what you do that's the point of this. It's why you do it. Why you do it. That's what seems to matter in Paul's thinking here. Why you do it makes all the difference. Because God is glorified when you choose a course of action in whatever lays before you. That could be eating, that could be drinking, or anything else, whatever you do. God is glorified when you choose a course of action on the basis of whether this is beneficial and will build other people up. Or will this help them see Jesus clearer through your actions? When you make your decision-making process about whatever you face in life, whatever you choose to do or not choose to do, if that decision-making process is not about what am I allowed to do, but what is it good to do? What is it beneficial for others to do? Paul says, God is glorified when that happens. Because you're starting to think the way that Paul thought and Paul was thinking the way that Jesus thought and we together are starting to look more and more like the children of God who are less concerned about what about my rights in this and we're starting to think about what's good for you? What's good for others so that they could see Jesus? How will this benefit them? How could this hurt them? Hey, and we do that as a church? God is definitely glorified. So we pursue the glory of God. And we do that by following Paul's example as he followed Christ's example in denying our own rights in preference for the good of others. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being with us this morning as we've worshipped in song, as we've reflected on your goodness in both um, occasions which bring us joy but also in occasions which bring us grief. And as we prepare to walk back out into the world that you have sent us into, carrying the message of hope that you have given to us, Lord, as a church, as we wrestle with the various choices that we will face this week, even this afternoon, Lord, help us to pursue your glory by denying our own sense of entitlement or right and as we pursue the good and the benefit of others. Lord, may you be glorified through that and through this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.